Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On the show this week, I am interviewing Jean Twenge, a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Jean is the prolific author of more than 180 scientific publications and seven books, including her most recent that is sending ripples around the world. It's called Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Jean took 38 million pieces of people's data and analysed behavioural trends to understand how people differ based on which generation they belong to. Jean writes that your generation probably has more influence on how you think than the family you grew up in. I thought this is kind of a mad thought because I guess it does make sense. We are all so shaped by the political movements, social trends and cultural norms more than what we might consider. Most alarmingly though, what she discovered was possibly even worse than what you might assume. Gen Z are struggling with mental health at a catastrophic level, and it all began going downhill rapidly the year the iPhone got more sophisticated. Who would have thought one invention could have so much impact on our brains? In this interview, we discuss all the things that Jean observed and what conclusions she drew. Is it possible, for example, to find better solutions to mental health by taking a wider look at the problems through the trends? Jean's work shows clearly that mental health isn't an individual problem. It's an environmental one, because this many humans wouldn't be struggling from so much of the same problems if the environment wasn't causing most of them. So maybe we should be looking at a government level and government intervention to try to solve some of the problems that we are seeing. I love understanding wider trends because it provides a really nuanced understanding about ourselves as well as the society at large. 
You've written over 180 scientific publications and books. You, I'm sure, have a trunk of ideas for books. So what was the main aim for Generations and why did this have to be your next book? Well, you know, I've written other books about individual generations, especially my, my last one, iGen, about Gen Z or Gen Z. A lot of it was about technology and how smartphones and social media had impacted the lives of, of young people, um, including their mental health. And I gave a lot of talks on that book at various places, you know, schools, uh, companies, and so on. And a question I would really consistently get was, well, has technology affected all of us? And of course it has. So that kind of got me thinking about writing a book about all of the generations, how they've all been affected by technology, but really all of the cultural changes of the last 50 years, which have been enormous, and to try to just take a deeper dive into all of the data on people of all ages and see how they've, they've changed over time. So by looking at the collective psychology, I guess, across all these generations, how has this changed your understanding of individual psychology? Because I know you're a professor of psychology, you're not obviously practicing in the conventional way, but do you approach individuals differently now? Well, I mean, I think what, what this book really shows is the impact of culture and cultural change on people. You know, I think there's a temptation especially in individualistic cultures like the U.S. and the U.K., to assume that, you know, we are just independent bubbles and that we're not really that influenced by things around us. But, you know, I think that's one of the lessons of a lot of research in psychology, sociology, social science as a whole, is that we are, of course, influenced by the society and culture around us, that the way we live our lives now is really different from the way people lived their lives 200 years ago. And that's partially direct effects of technology, but in terms of our values and you know, things like when we get married, when we have children is very different. And just kind of keeping that in perspective, one thing it also really kind of gave me as a, as a uh, sort of a little bit of a message um, for myself and for everybody else, I think, as individuals, is although we certainly have challenges in our current moment, how lucky we are to live in a time with, I mean, it's just a few examples, air conditioning, modern medical care, and washing machines. One thing that really surprised me reading this book was how different the data was to what I expected, you know, in, in the sense that I couldn't believe that millennials, for example, are arguably more economically as buoyant as their parents. And obviously for people in their 30s, I think there is just a general consensus that nobody can get on the housing ladder and they're not going to make as much wealth as their parents have done. So what else surprised you most about the data that feels contrary to cultural opinion. Yeah, that was certainly one. And, you know, I think it's important to put that finding in, in context that, you know, the housing market in the last two years has gotten a lot tougher. But yeah, up until 2020 or so, so most of the 2010s, at least in the U.S. data, millennials have bought during that time actually got a pretty good deal, historically speaking, when it, when it comes to housing. Because 
prices might have been high, but interest rates were very, very low. So the payments were actually just historically not not that bad. And then, yeah, median incomes are at all-time highs, even corrected for inflation. And that's partially because more millennials went to college. And it's also because so many more women had gotten such good jobs. That also means then if, say, in a heterosexual couple, both want to keep their incomes up, then they have to pay for childcare, and that's expensive. So, you know, there are definitely reasons why, you know, millennials are surprised to hear this, and that's one of them. But, you know, there's a lot of good news in there. There's that that good news about, you know, women's salaries just skyrocketing, which I think is, is really great. There were a, a lot of other surprises, too. I think especially... Some of the stuff that's later in the book in the chapter on the future, on I say the future of work, looking at 18-year-olds' attitudes about what they want out of a job, there's a really common assumption that younger generations want a lot of purpose and meaning. And the data doesn't really back that up when you take age out of the equation. 18-year-olds are a little less likely to say they want a job that's interesting compared to previous generations at the same age. They're a little less likely to say they want a job where they can make friends. What they do say, Gen Z in particular, is they want a job that is worthwhile to society and is directly helpful to others. So I think that's really interesting that that's what's increased the most among 18-year-olds in the last 10 years in terms of what they want out of a job. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'd love to dive into the pretty horrifying statistics around mental health and I guess the reason why I found this so enlightening is because I think that you really touch upon some of the core reasons and thus potentially some of the solutions that I'm not too sure we can fix on an individual level. So let's go to the reality of where mental health is and how does it differ between millennials and Jed Z, for example, who seem to be the most uh, people who are suffering. Yeah. We can start with Jen said, that's where my research really began on, on this topic, because I've been working with these you know, large surveys of teens for a long time. So I kind of kept an eye on a lot of the mental health responses in those surveys. And they didn't change a whole lot until the data from uh, about 2012, 2013, and then all of a sudden, more and more teens started to say they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that their life wasn't useful. More started to say they felt lonely and left out. Then I started to see this uh, even bigger and more established surveys, like a big government-funded one in the U.S. of clinical-level depression. And as I kept following that, the, these increases just became larger and larger. So clinical-level depression, for example, double among teens in the U.S. between 2011 and 2019. So notice that's before the pandemic. And there's all this talk about the adolescent mental health crisis, so it must be because of the pandemic. No, it started about eight years before the pandemic. And then with some collaborations also started to find out this is international. We looked at adolescent loneliness and in 36 countries around the world, adolescent loneliness was increasing. And that, in, that includes the US and the UK. Also looking at Australia and New Zealand and the UK and a couple studies, adolescent depression, self-harm going up. And it is really important to note, these are not people going to the doctor to get a diagnosis. So it's not over-treatment or people being more willing to seek help. 
It's also not people being more willing to admit to problems because we see the exact same changes in objectively measured behaviors like emergency room admissions for self-harm and for suicide. So that's where the story starts is for teens. Then a couple years later, depression started to increase for young adults as well, 18 to 25-year-olds. And then a couple years after that, it started to spread to 26 to 34-year-olds, and that's millennials these days for the most part. Those increases are not as big. They're about half the size as the ones for Gen Z. But it's interesting. That was a group who, as teens, was very happy, very high in life satisfaction, was, had you know historically pretty average levels of political-level depression. And then around 2015 or 2016, their levels of depression started going up too. You talk about technological change, but also a slower life trajectory. What is it about technology, do you think, that are driving these trends? And why is it that the generations are kind of being hit a little bit later and a little bit later? Because you'd have thought if it's just the introduction of the smartphone, everybody would have been affected in that 2012 era. I'll take that piece by piece. So first, you know, let's just focus on teens because I think that's where the, the the story is. We have the most data and I think that the story is the, is the most clear in terms of what happened in their lives. So around that time, 2012, there's a couple things that happen. That's the time when the majority of Westerners owned a smartphone. So we have specific data in the U.S. It was like December 2012, January 2013. It's the first time the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. That ownership crossed 50%. And then that's when Facebook bought Instagram. It's when teens started to spend more time on social media. Because see, in 2009, only about half of teens used social media every day. And by 2017, it was about 80 or 85%. So it kind of hits that tipping point where if you're not using it, you're left out, where it becomes it's not just daily use, but it's hours and hours a day. So a lot more time online. And at that same time, teens started to spend less time with each other in person. So they're not hanging out with their mates. They're not driving around in cars. They're not going to malls. They're just not doing these things that teens have always done when they spent time with each other. Big surveys have all these questions on it. And, you know, spending time face-to-face with your friends was sliding a little bit after 2000 when, you know, instant messaging and stuff was starting to take off and people were texting with their thumbs. So, you know, it started to slide a little bit, but it really accelerated after 2011 or so, 2012 in the age of the smartphone, just black diamond ski slope right down. So a lot less time with friends in person, more time online. And then the other piece, teens started to spend less time sleeping. So you put this together, less time with friends in person, less time sleeping, more time on social media and online, that's not a good formula for mental health. So I think it's, it's pretty clear that that's one of the major elements for teens because the way they spent their time outside of school fundamentally changed. And so that is, of course, going to have an impact on their mental health, you know, especially for teens where social life is such a big deal. And unlike adults, they're not married or living with a partner or their social situation is so centered on their friends. It's really clear that that, you know, was having a really big impact. For young adults, some similar trends that are, are having impact. Young adults also started to spend less time with friends face-to-face. 
And I think it was delayed by a year or two because it's that generational effect. Also being exposed to that environment when you're young, when that's kind of the basis for mental health, for social skills, is that very impactful period when if you don't get that basis for social life, then it's a little harder later on. And then for the 26 to 34 year olds, they also started spending a little less time with with people face to face as well in a way that didn't happen for people over the age of 40, which is interesting. So there's pe- lots of people over the age of 40 on social media now, mm. but they didn't cut back on their face-to-face time with friends. That time probably came out of maybe watching TV or something else. So that that was interesting. But that you know, older young adult group, for lack of a better name, there I think it's a little bit more complex because the, the timing isn't as exact on 2012. It's a smaller change. And I think there's potential for maybe some other explanations, maybe being disappointed by adulthood might come in, maybe the really polarized and negative political and media climate that got even worse in the mid-2010s, that's going to have a bigger impact on you know, adults who are voting and, and you know, more participatory than, say, young teens, where you saw the effects a few years before. There's something that has really captivated me about your work, and I don't know whether it's because it has so explicitly shown how basic our needs are to be healthy, happy humans in some ways. And I know there's been a huge hot debate where there's no scientific evidence to suggest there's chemical imbalances. And so all of this prescribed medication was given with the view to, oh, but it's my brain, it's unbalanced. And actually your data shows pretty clearly that actually our behavior has driven these horrific feelings for many millions of people. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm not a biopsychologist or a neuroscientist, so it's, you know, I can't really comment on the on the exact stuff, you know, going on in the brain, except to say it's very well known that behavior does change the brain. So it's possible, mm-hmm. certainly, that still things are going on in the brain. It's just not as clear now, I think, exactly what. And we're getting more research on that. But how you spend your time is going to have an impact on your mental health. That makes sense from both the scientific and kind of a common sense point of view. You've nailed it with that common sense point of view comment, because sometimes I think when we're talking about what's good for our mental health, it can feel so basic. You almost feel a bit embarrassed to give someone advice. Why don't you go outside? Have you seen a friend? It feels so basic that that can't possibly be the solution to something that feels so overwhelming, so heavy. And yet this data suggests pretty promising hints that really is that impactful. That's the thing. If this time use and this you know, huge growth in online time and in social media, if that really is the cause of the teen mental health crisis, that could actually be good news because that means we can fix it. Mm. It's really hard to fix a lot of the other causes of depression. You know, We're not going to be able to fix genetic predisposition anytime soon mm-hmm. or it's going to be really hard to get rid of all poverty, discrimination, trauma, et cetera. But we can, especially for younger people, place limits on social media. As parents, you know, try to emphasize getting together with your friends face-to-face rather than online. But there's only so much we can do as individuals. We need more group-level solutions, particularly for social media, because social media has social in the name. Even teens who don't use social media 
are impacted. Because if they don't, they feel left out. And then if they use it, they have all the pressures of social media. So that's what teens say when I talk to them. They say, we feel like we can't win. Yes. And that's what I've heard from parents. You know, I'm not a parent myself and they've said it's pretty impossible to kind of monitor social media use because they then feel left out and socially isolated if they're the only kid in the class that's not using it in the evening and you don't want to do that to your child. But you do actually have some solutions that could be in place at more government level. What are these? So the first is we should raise the minimum age for social media to 16 and actually enforce it. And that's going to mean age verification of one sort or another. Just for context, right now, the minimum age for social media is 13, which is really too young. That's really a terrible time to introduce social media. It's right when kids are struggling with identity and puberty and and all of these things at that age. Uh, It wasn't settled on originally as any kind of developmental thing. It was a compromise with a lot of the tech companies. So raise it to a more logical age developmentally, where we know that the links between social media use and mental health start to become a little weaker. Because the, by the, I mean, there's lots of research that shows this, including a, a really great study with um, um, a big sample of UK teens that showed that the strongest link between hours of social media use and psychological well-being was for girls who are young teens. And then it starts to fade. And I see the same thing in the U.S. data that I work with. So, you know, that's an age where we trust kids to do more things and to be more independent and to take more responsibility. And they're beyond, you know, a lot of the really tough things of the teen years at that point. But the problem right right now is there's no age verification. You put in your birthday and it's easy to lie about it or you check a box. You don't need parental permission either. So there's a lot of kids who, even young kids, you know, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds who get on social media and their parents have no idea. These platforms weren't designed for kids or even teens. They were designed for adults. And so that causes all kinds of problems. I was fascinated to see the, the word narcissism, which I feel has become incredibly popular in the last two years, um, especially, is really associated with millennials. And there's a higher rate of narcissistic people in the millennial generation. Why is this? And surely that's contributing to mental health too. Well, you know, the pattern for changes in narcissistic traits is not simple. Um, it was for a little bit, the beginning when I first started doing this work, there was a clear, pretty straightforward linear increase um, from boomers to Gen Xers to early millennials, but then it actually went down. So there was a little bit of a reset around 2008, probably with the Great Recession. And then you'd think maybe it would go back up with um, the economy coming back. But I think because of social media and a lot of the other things we've been discussing, it didn't come back up. So I actually don't think narcissism is our biggest problem now at all. Sure, it's still a problem. There are still narcissistic people out there who are highly problematic. But in terms of on the average level, if we're talking about challenges across the generations, mental health is a much bigger one. Right. And do you think then that mental health also has been driven up by, as you write about, the individualistic approach we have to life over a collective approach and do you see that changing at all? And and maybe to go back a few steps, would you mind describing what do you mean by a more individualistic approach? Sure. You know, so the, the kind of underlying theory in the book is that technological change 
leads to most generational change. And sometimes it does that directly, but it also does that through other downstream things like um, slower development, and I'm sure we'll get to that later, and individualism. So when you have a society with, you know, just more development, more conveniences, it's easier to be independent. It's easier to um, live on your own. It's easier to have the time to think about yourself and how you feel about yourself and all of these more self-reflective things. And in general, as societies become more industrialized, they and there's exceptions to this, most become more individualistic. So that's more focused on the self and less on social rules. So it's not all bad or all good. And it's not liberal or conservative. I always want to clear that up to you. It's not political per se, but it includes things like more equality. Because when you don't bin people into groups and say you have to behave like everybody in your group, that's individualism. It's also a huge boon in for, and it's just one example individualism supports women being able to have careers, for example. So the downside of individualism is relationships tend not to be as stable. People are not as closely connected with each other. I mean, sure, in the age of the smartphone, we're connected with each other, but are those connections really deep and stable? Not as much. So this is the other challenge for mental health today that one of the things humans need the most for good mental health is stable relationships. And individualism doesn't really promote that. And we're massively seeing that in the dropping birth rate. Yes. Which has quite profound and significant consequences. Do you anticipate the birth rate ever stabilizing? Or what are your thoughts or what does the data suggest where birth rate and fertility is moving towards? So I would be really surprised if the birth rate comes back up in Western countries, may even continue to go down. Yet it's already gone down a lot. There's a number of pieces of data that point in that direction. One is really directly that big survey of 18-year-olds here in the U.S. has asked since 1976, are you likely to have children? Ask two questions, actually. You're likely to have children, and then in an ideal world, you know, where you could have as many as you wanted, how many children would you want? So the number of 18-year-olds who said they want to have children is pretty high and very stable. It was very stable from the 70s until about, very familiar number, 2012, and then it started to go down. So that's the transition between millennials and Gen Z. It's also when a lot of this other stuff started to go wrong in terms of mental health. Uh, when pessimism started to increase as well. And I think that's one of the big reasons. When people are optimistic, they have children. When people are not optimistic right now. So I think that's kind of the underlying thing. But the practical effect is, you look at that, at 18, millennials in the U.S. said they wanted to have kids. Like a huge number of them wanted to. And the same, you know, and that had been stable since the 80s, 70s. And the birth rate went way down when millennials became at childbearing age. Well, Gen Z is just getting to childbearing age, at least in terms of the averages these days. And at 18, more of them said they didn't want to have kids. So that makes me think that birth rate is going to continue to go down. You know, this linked into one of my favorite chapters that was looking at the fact that we've got more access to sexual partners than ever before. And yet we are having less sex 
that any human and any generation has had. And how do you understand this? Because that's when I think the data just doesn't match up because you're like, you know, we're talking about mental health more, so surely we should be being more expressed and as a consequence feeling happier. We have more access to partners and yet we are having as little sex as we've ever had. Like, what's happening? Yes, so those results of um, young adults being less likely to be sexually active, having sex less often, you know, over the course of a year were really, really surprising. You know, I took a look at that data in so many different ways to make sure that that result was solid. And it was, and that trend continued. And since then, other researchers have also found it in a couple other surveys and reanalyzed this one as well. So we know that it's true. You know, 18 to 25 year olds less likely to be sexually active. Those who are sexually active have sex fewer times during the year than previous generations. And some of that is because married people have more sex and people in that age group are now not as likely to be married as they were in previous generations. But it shows up for unmarried adults as well. And married adults, when you graph them and analyze them separately, you see a decline in both groups. So although that's part of it, that's not all of it. It is a real puzzle to try to figure out you know, why, why that's the case in an age when premarital sex is considered totally fine. Certain religious groups and a few others may look down upon it, but paired to say you know, the 1960s, it's night and day in terms of attitudes. And when technology allows us to find sexual partners, I wonder if that's part of the problem, actually. Just the way dating apps work. There may be a certain number of people who are highly successful on those apps and they leave out the majority of people. So that may actually play a role in some of these trends. The technology that seems like it would allow this to be easier might make it harder for some people. So I think that's one thing that's going on. I think technology and how we spend our time is another piece that as young adults are spending less time with each other face to face. So they are not going to bars and other public places as much as they used to or dance clubs or any of these things as, you know, places to meet potential partners. And so when that falls off, then, you know, traditionally that's where people have met sexual partners. And when that's not happening as much, that is going to play a role too. And this also links to a graph I saw in your book, which again surprised me, is how much less drugs are being consumed too. Because again, you probably expect if mental health is really chronic, which it is and rising, then you would think, oh, people probably, surely they're resorting to class A drugs. And yet it's like night and day. There were so many more drugs being taken in the 60s and barely any now. Yeah. Actually, 70s and 80s is when it was really, really high. And it varies depending on what drug we're talking about. So alcohol, people don't drink as much alcohol as they used to. Marijuana use is actually way up among young adults. It's not among teens, but it is among young adults. But yeah, you're talking about things like cocaine and heroin and so on. Yeah, those were much more common uh, in the 70s and 80s than they are now. And you know, I looked into that data set and put that analysis in the chapter on boomers because that's where you really see that transition with drug use is the silent generation right before the boomers grew up in the 50s. The drug use was extremely low for that generation, including marijuana. I mean, people had barely heard of it. And when they had, it was, oh, the reefer madness of like, you better not do that. And then that became much more acceptable. And then a lot of the harder drugs became more acceptable, but then they fell back out of style. 
What do you think we can learn from the silence generation, for example, or just, you know, the older generations that it was actually quite uplifting to hear that the silence generation survived and got through the pandemic and even, you know, arguably the the worst hit, they, you know, didn't see their families, they were isolated and yet their mental health still remained pretty strong. What makes that generation more resilient and what do you think we as younger generations can learn? Yeah, it is both a sad and happy story really for uh, silence the last few years because, um, so that's people born 1925 to 1945. So if you look at the deaths during COVID, that was the group that got hit the worst and the hospitalizations. So that's the very bad news part of the story that a lot in that generation lost their lives five, 10, sometimes 20 years before they should have. And that, you know, that, that has impacted a lot of families. But those who survived, yeah, big surprise. Their mental health actually was better during the pandemic than younger people. They were certainly raised in a time of, you know, this stiff upper lip and the stay calm. The oldest of them were around during World War II. Um, not all of them. A lot of those that are around now, of course, don't remember it, but they lived in that post-war time, which... I, I think just had that message of, of get on with it, mm. which is actually not a great message in a lot of ways because mental health problems are real and we need to deal with them and we need to not blow them off. However, I, I think it gave them this resilience to say tomorrow will be better and, oh, there's bad stuff happening. Well, I mean, some of this is just wisdom from being older. They know, they have seen crisis after crisis that then resolves itself. And I think that a lot of their strength comes from that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How do you think we need to change the language around mental health? Because another part of your book analyzes cultural references, um, language that are used more now than previously. For example, the word, I'd love to discuss the word give and get. That was, that yes. was fascinating. But you would think that the more we've spoken about it, we've made it much more socially acceptable to share mental health problems. And yet, there clearly seems to be absolutely zero solution in raising this conversation uh, more publicly. The data would suggest that. Anecdotally, 
obviously we probably might would might disagree. But what's your interpretation of all of that? It is tough because I think there is the common argument is, oh, people are talking about it more. So there's not really a mental health crisis just because people are talking about it more. But, you know, as I mentioned, self-harm, suicide, suicide attempts, all of those are have gone up a ton in the last 10 years, especially among young people. So it is real. It's not just that we brought this out into the open and then everybody said, oh, yes, that that's me. Because it is extending to these behaviors that are really, really serious. So then you're right. I, I think that's exactly the question. We have to take this out and examine it and say, well, this open conversation that we're having is definitely a net positive. But have we maybe even taken it too far? Mm. I mean, and some people made this argument, and I'm I'm not convinced by this argument, and it's not one that I'm making personally, mm. but I think we should consider it at least. The idea that so many people are talking about how depressed they are that it almost becomes popular. Mm. And that may, especially for young people, be an influence of, oh, everybody's doing that. Maybe that's something that I should do. And again, I'm not totally convinced by that, but I, I wonder if that's part of what's going on. Yes, I, I agree. Or maybe not that it's popular. There's some sort of confirmation bias. You know, if someone says that you've got some like terrible disease, you like then suddenly start to look for symptoms because you're so desperately fearful that you might have it. And then it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. That I think is the key part, that it's not just that more people are saying, oh, yeah, I feel that way. And that's why the trends are going up it spirals in on itself because mm. then you start looking at all of the TikToks about depressed people or, you know, you start talking to, you know, lots of other people who feel this way. And then that can sometimes lead to people becoming depressed themselves. I mean, and it definitely happens with self-harm that that can have that element of friends doing and you see other people doing it and, oh, that's what people do. Because I know eating disorders are very contagious, and the data suggests that. On the topic of eating disorders, anybody will say that people born in the 90s were very much shoved that heroin chic, don't eat, and, you know, Kate Moss's famous quote, nothing uh, tastes as good as skinny feels. And we obviously have moved into more of a body positivity movement, but would the data suggest that in eating disorders? You know, I haven't seen good solid evidence of trends over time in eating disorders. Yes, you know, so I wasn't able to put that in the book. It might be out there now. I think that's worth that's worth looking into because I, I think we have opposing influences right now. So mm -hmm. this is why it'd be interesting to look at. Problematically, we have Instagram, say, which Facebook's own research shows this that a lot of teen girls and young women develop body image issues from looking at very, very skinny people on Instagram. Um, and sometimes from the Explore page, they end up being fed that content. TikTok does the same, unfortunately. You can start looking for healthy diets and then you end up down a wormhole, you know, and it's pro-anorexia sites. That is in the element today. But then on the other hand, there absolutely is much more of that message of body positivity. So I, I really wonder, you know, how that has had an influence on young women today, just in terms of the, of the trends. What has made you feel very optimistic about the data? Because I know that, you know, we've spoken about some very important truths, that mental health is extremely real. But what made you feel really optimistic about life after writing this book? Seeing how many more young people said helping others is important. 
I think that's really, really encouraging. And very anecdotally, I see that reflected in my undergraduate students. They're very, very nice. They seem very empathic. And I think also from watching young activists speaking out about how social media has impacted them and how it needs to change, that has been very encouraging to see. Because that's who needs to be speaking out on this because they know what it is like to grow up with these platforms. And Gen Xers like me, I can analyze the data and I could talk to the folks, but that wasn't my lived experience and it's theirs. And so I think it's it's really wonderful to see that. And I think that needs to happen more. I noticed that when I gave talks at at schools, you know, the the past six years. Uh, obviously most of that was pre-pandemic. But I had so many conversations with teens where they said, we know this. We know it doesn't feel good when we're on social media for so long, but we feel like we have to and we don't know how to get away from it. And that, again, I just think points to that group level solution that we really need to implement. What do you mean when you talk about the slower life trajectory, which is another overarching trend of the book? Yeah. So technology has given us longer lifespans. We also need more education. So those are forces that push toward people taking longer to grow up and taking longer to grow old. So if you look at the changes over the last 5,200 years, kids are less independent. Teens take longer to do things like get a driver's license or drink alcohol or go out without their parents or have a paid job. All of those have gone down um, among 18-year-olds, for example. They've also gone down among 14-year-olds. So 14-year-olds, just they're less likely to go out on dates than they used to, less likely to have a, a, a job, you know, it would be babysitting or mowing lawns or something. But used to be that was the majority experience for 14-year-olds, and now it's about 25%. So big changes there. For young adults, they get married later and have their kids later and settle into their careers later. And then for middle-aged and older people, they look and feel younger than their parents or grandparents did at the same age. So that's the idea of 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50. And there's actually some biological truth to this. Some uh, In a medical journal article, they looked at this and looked at biomarkers. And people in their 50s were from biomarkers about five years younger than people in their 50s in the 1990s. It's really interesting. My worry with this, and it's because I'm experiencing it now being 32, is mentally, I think that we are a lot younger, but yet our biological clock hasn't quite got the memo. Yeah. So I'm seeing a lot of panic in millennial women. You know, we've been going along our lives quite blissfully, not blissfully, but you know, we've been going along. And the pandemic was a really critical time for probably meeting mates that you might want to procreate with. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, in my kind of previous life, um, I actually wrote a book about getting pregnant. It's my one book that wasn't on my own research, but I have I have three kids. I had them all over the age of 35. So it was a topic I got really interested in. I started reading medical journal articles and so on because when you're a researcher, you're a little crazy with that. You know, like, oh, this is what this article says, but let's go actually find the research. Not all researchers are that crazy, but I was. So I, I called the book The Impatient Woman's Guide to Getting Pregnant because that's me. I'm very, very impatient. And I was older. And a lot of my Gen X peers were older. And I think you're absolutely right. That is, you know, next level for millennials as well. 
And yeah, yeah, if you want to have children, that biological clock hasn't budged. However, the good news is that whole, that whole idea of like, if you wait till you're 35, it's not going to happen for you. Like the, the statistics are quoted everywhere. Oh, if you're over 35, only one out of three you know, women are going to get pregnant after a year or something like that. It was a like crazy, you know, no, it was the other way around. It's two, only two thirds well, but then a third won't. Like, yikes, that's really scary. It turns out that comes from French birth records from the 1500s. Oh, wow. So that's the good news that the more modern data is more encouraging, that it's more like 78%, 80% uh, will get pregnant after a year. So the conclusion that I came to in, in the book, and then um, I had an Atlantic article you know, on this as well, that there is a deadline, but the deadline's 40, not 35. Which I think is incredibly reassuring for women to hear because it inevitably slightly disrupts the empowerment of women when they get to this point. So actually to have a bit more of truthful and understanding of, you know, not 15th century data um, is quite, it's quite helpful in, you know, driving decision making. Where is the data leading you now after writing this book? What is captivating your attention as to what needs more exploration, you know, in order to hopefully change a train that we might need to be changed? I'm still thinking a lot about mental health, both the trends and the relationship to screen time and, and social media use in particular. I'm really, really hoping that we'll have some movement on on that, that if we can at least protect the youngest teen maybe we can see a turnaround in those mental health statistics. So even though I love talking about all of the trends in the book, that's still, I think, the the one that has the clearest solution and most needs to be solved. So this fall, I'm, I'm going to you know resume giving some of those talks at schools to talk about this. And because we don't have that group level solution and regulation, that teens and parents still have to solve this themselves. And it's hard. It's hard for individuals to, to solve this. But, you know, there's there's certain things that we can do. We can do things like not have her phone in the bedroom overnight. That's for everybody, not just for, for teens. Tons of studies um, from sleep labs and, and correlational and everything else point toward people not sleeping as well when that phone is within arm's reach. So if you could possibly get away with it, you know, put it outside of the bedroom overnight. That's kind of my number one tip. And then if you have kids, put off getting them a smartphone as long as you can. Get them a flip phone or some other alternative. Like, a, I don't know, in the US, we have a thing called a Gab phone. I'm sure there's one types available in the UK as well. But a phone that doesn't have internet access, where you can't access social media, or you can't, you know, go online, where you can call and text so they can still keep in touch with their friends and still call you if they need help, but not have all of the world of social media at their fingertips when they're nine or 10, which is when kids get their phones down. And just to be clear, removing your phone from the bedroom, is that to protect your lights from blue light that is obviously then disrupting your melatonin, the hormone needed to go to sleep? Or is it because you're more likely just to sink time into something that's taking away from precious sleep time? It's a bunch of different things. I think that's why that's one tip that is so impactful. So it's first that, yeah, if you're looking at that phone right before bed or worse in the middle of the night, if when you wake up, that blue light from the device, you'll shine to your eyes and then your brain doesn't produce the melatonin that you need, you know, to go to sleep. That's the physiological element. 
There's also the psychological element that if you're looking at it before bed, it's very stimulating. So it's not just don't have it in the bedroom, like try not to look at it within about an hour of going to sleep. Because if you're reading a book or say watching TV, that tends to be more relaxing because it's not as psychologically stimulating. It's not as interactive. It's just less likely to kind of get your brain going. The other part of it, though, is just the physical presence of the phone. Even if it's on do not disturb, notification silenced or whatever you have, you don't sleep as well. That's what they've shown in, in, in sleep labs. So it's partially the temptation to be up late and partially to look at it in the middle of the night. It's just, but the phone just being there because our brains kind of know it's there. You know, it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, we know it's there. And then our brain's kind of still thinking about what we're doing on the phone. And then you're not sleeping because you're not getting to that relaxed state. Jean, thank you so much for this um, interview. I mean, we probably touched upon 2.5% of your book. Um, it is such a fascinating psychological study on our behavior as humans. Where's the best place for people to find you, um, follow your work, ask further questions? So the only social media I have is Twitter. So I'm on there. I have a Substack now. I just just started it. Oh, so that's that's one place. Um, I'm I'm not one of those folks who's going to post every week. It's probably going to be more like every month. But uh, my last post was um, an original analysis I hadn't published anywhere else, looking at just how much time teens spend on social media. Uh, and then I'll also use it for um, academic articles, mine and others on this topic, to highlight some of the findings there. So you know, kind of keeping up to date with the with the newest research. So that's kind of my my new little project. And then. I'll also say that if if you pick up the book, don't be intimidated by how long it is and how many graphs are in it, because the graphs are meant to convey the information. And the other thing is, you could just read the chapter on your own generation and you'll still learn something. So you don't have to even read the whole thing. I'll give you permission. So true. The graphs are really fun. I think so. Not everybody thinks so, but I think they add a lot. And then, then you're not having to describe the trends in words. Because that gets old really fast. You can just look at the graph and see what happened. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.